There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth series of The Human Podcast, a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. So often, our personal stories of tragedy and survival are left untold, hidden behind the facade of our ordinary lives. Human has been created to make them more seen, more heard, and more celebrated. Because by doing so, I think we can all feel more connected to our shared humanity. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, join us and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit. Bexy Cameron is a writer, director and activist. Her first best-selling book, a memoir, Cult Following, which was published last year to widespread awe and acclaim, is currently being transformed into a dramatised series with Dakota Johnson and Riley Keough starring as the leads. It's not surprising that the world from Hollywood to London was set alight by this book because it is a pure, tender, gripping and ferociously brave story which provides a rare and intimate window into what it was like to grow up inside the children of God, one of the most infamous religious cults of this century. Now, Bexy, I wanted to lead this introduction to you with your own words from this opening passage of your book. Please tell me everything. I've heard this in the pub, at 4am at house parties, at my desk at work. The person could be a friend. Sometimes it's a complete stranger. It can come from a face filled with pity or one which is wet with excitement. Tell me everything comes when people find out that I'm a sex cult girl. But what could I possibly give you in five minutes that might reveal what it was like being raised in a sex cult? Do you want to hear about a generation of kids fueled by the war in Vietnam who genuinely believed that the world was coming to an end? Or the charismatic leader who gave them purpose, rescuing them from the families they didn't fit into, from drug addiction or maybe just the horror of being middle class and normal? Or do you want to hear about my exorcism, 
about when the mums became glorified prostitutes for Jesus, about my parents going on every media channel in the UK and beyond to defend a group that abused thousands of children. Would it help to know that where I come from, my childhood is considered a lucky one? That my sisters and I talk about how fortunate we are because Dad isn't a paedophile? Would any of this really give you an idea of who I am or the world I grew up in? You would get fractions of it all, sure, but it would be out of context, splinters like these, that would pull you further away both from me and what a story like this could reveal about our basic human need for connection and purpose, about surviving our childhoods, about the gifts that trauma can bring, and maybe at some point, what we actually, hopefully, could learn about forgiveness. <laughs> now, Bexy, I just want our listeners to be able to have a moment to take all of that in and just to say now that, you know, I know this is a story that you have, as I've just described, spent much of your life telling and retelling and it's an amazing thing that you have now been able to tell it completely on your own terms in your book. And so I just wanted to say that this interview is is absolutely not about you gratuitously retelling what happened to you and instead this is just a moment to really really honor what happened on the inside of you that enabled that journey from a childhood of mental physical emotional and spiritual incarcerations to lead to a life of such truly self-realized emancipation and before we say anything else I just wanted to thank you so much for being with us um as you know since I read your book last year I've been absolutely dying to have you on this podcast so I just cannot tell you how happy I am for you to be with us today so listen before before we get into anything else I just wanted to say see Bexy how how are you how are you today I'm good. I'm good. Well, I, I say I'm good. I'm actually a little bit hungover. I saw my brothers. Yes. And, I saw my brothers and sisters last night, um, and they did a bit of a number on me. But it was definitely like I don't know. They, we're at a bit of a point at the moment where we just want to see each other and hold each other and hug each other. And yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, really important. Um, so yeah, I'm good. I'm feeling really grateful for my family and. Thank you so much for what what a beautiful reading you just did. I've never heard anyone read my words before, and it was quite it felt quite emotional hearing it. It's like yeah, it was beautiful. So thank you for that. Well, all your words, all I did was read them. <laughs> so Bexy, from reading your book, which I read literally in two days, I just could not put it down. Um, it really feels that that threshold moment you know, the moment that you left when you were just 15, it seems as a moment that you had probably been, been building up for, to for your entire life. Um, I just wondered if you could kind of speak to us a little bit about, about that. It's quite strange when I think about that time period because I was building up to leaving my entire, like definitely since about the age of 10, for sure. Um, but when it happens, it has quite a different effect, I think, than the one people necessarily want to hear about. You have this idea, potentially, of empowerment and freedom 
and that's kind of what I wanted to feel. But I know that if you've read the book, you know that's not how it turned out for me. Um, I had essentially my, you know, I was essentially ousted from the group. I was trying to leave, but I got excommunicated and voted out of the home. So when that happened, I think what I was really hoping for was this moment of being like, I've done it, I'm out. And instead, it was a moment of feeling like I'd been kind of shunned and abandoned by the people that I that I grew up with, um, by my parents, by everyone in my community. And I don't think I really knew what effect that had on me until maybe 15 years later, maybe around, actually, maybe around the age of like 26, 27 is when that started to kind of really come out. There was all these wonderful bits of being free. There was, you know, the first time I stood in front of a speaker in a nightclub and heard music for the first time and the rush of all of that experience. You know, we didn't, ha we didn't have music except for our own, for example. Listening to Whitney Houston for the first time. Oh my God, like I want to dance with somebody. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about like all these first times that I had. It's almost like, you know, being an alien that's been allowed into the world and you're trying everything. And it's just, it's kind of bonkers to think about how that first maybe year or two was just an explosion of things and experiences and, and hardship and all of that kind of compounded together. Um, it's, it's a lot for a teenager to go through, for sure. Um, and I'm sure that there's loads of different people that have that in, in different ways. You know, you might be coming out of a, a certain religion or you might leave home that was really closed down and all of a sudden you're experiencing stuff. And maybe just when you're a regular teenager that leaves home and all of a sudden you can, you know, <laughs> get into all the candies and everything else that you've not been allowed to, you know, I think that, that there's probably multiple experiences of this. But yeah, it was, it was a real explosion of everything, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, what really struck me was that there was this, you know, must have been this really very all-encompassing sort of experience of unlearning as well, everything about the outside world, you know, in fact, the whole kind of world order yeah. <laughs> in and of itself that you had been taught. And, and you, you, there's this one example that you give, which is such a kind of, such a beautiful insight into that. And it's such a simple observation that you make, but it's, it's so powerful. And you said, there's a moment when you describe hearing for the first time about the concept of pocket money. And, um, and it's, you know, this observation about this is quite a mundane thing that, but it's just such a powerful insight into how profoundly you had been removed from the rest of the world and, and all of its kind of simplest kind of cultural references. Mm. Yeah, I got to be honest with you, there's there's a kind of duality to this idea of unlearning, because I think if I was going to get a bit noodly about it, like there's a lot of stuff that I wish that we could all have a, have that moment of, of unlearning the stuff that we've been taught and the things that society have handed down to us from like gender norms and be, just just everything. I don't even we don't even need to, yeah. you know, to yeah, yeah. like get into it. We know what we're talking about. But for me, there's still stuff that when I you know, you have these things and you think that they're just a part of your fabric and then you go, hang on a second, where does that come from? You know, why do mm. I think that? There's a ton of things that I, you know, like we were told, like heaven is inside the moon, for example, the world is only 6,000 years old, which I know a lot of creation creationists believe. You know, there, there's, there, I mean, there's just so many things that we grew up with 
that, you know, my nemesis really, my worst place you could put me is a pub quiz. Like, <laughs> like that's literally my, that's kind of my kryptonite. To be asked like questions that involve pop culture and then you really get to see how little I know. And like I've been out for a long time and I'm still like, what's that? How, how's that now? I can pass, you know, for normal-ish in most situations. But a pub quiz really shows you where my, uh, where my, my big spots in my knowledge are. But yeah, it is, it's interesting to kind of think about the concept of what we've been given and how we kind of have to, we, we all need to kind of pick away at what is the kind of tautological thinking that we've been given and what are the things that we actually believe and think and feel and questioning ourselves all the time? So I think we all need to do it. But yeah, it is weird when you kind of go, hang on a second, everything pretty much was a lie. Like everything, the way that I'm supposed to view outsiders, how I'm supposed to look at the police, what education is for, the day mm -hmm. that I'm going to die. Like, you know, I was meant to die at the age of 14. To grow up with that as your expiration date is, that is everything. That's all encompassing because it means that you don't need an education because you will never be an adult. You know, it's, it's growing up to, for a specific reason. So when that falls away and you go, I'm not going to die, I am going to be an adult, but how do I become one? Now that I've been given a future, how do I actually make the most of it? And, um, you know, I, it's, it's interesting to look around my family and see how we've all kind of dealt with it in quite different ways. We've got certain people in my family who are consultants to creatives, to nurses, to whatever. But everyone having to go on this own route of figuring out like, what it is, who you are, what do you like? You know, all of these things. You know, like, what music do you even like? And I apologise if you can hear that. I think there's a, a Bangra celebration going on in the park behind me. So if you can hear that, right. then, you know, let's celebrate with them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this idea, Bexy, that, you know, as a child, to, to have been to been raised believing that you were going to die when you were 14 and then to be suddenly be given the licence for the rest of your life, I mean, it's... I mean, how do you find words really to describe what what that experience feels like? Yeah, I think that the interesting thing for me was realizing, and again, this all kind of happened around the beginning, like in the book, when I decided to go on my first steps to the journey, it was kind of realizing then that I couldn't actually get out of my mind that I had a ticking clock over me, even though I knew like academically, I knew that it wasn't real. I still was behaving as if time was running out yeah. you know whether it's like I mean like burning the candle at both ends doing every single thing that I could like literally and I know I know we all want to make the most of life but there was getting to a point where I literally was trying to fit in everything that I possibly could to the point to the point where it was unhealthy and realizing actually there is time mm. there is, I mean hopefully there's time none of us know how much time we have it's a whole nother conversation isn't it but you know, it was realizing actually that there was that, that there was a part of me that actually did need to slow down, and there was a part of me that needed to figure out, just figure it out, rather than just being constantly on the move and on the run, because you know it's a it's a really great way to deal with your problems is by constantly being busy and constantly mm. doing stuff and finding projects of other people, but um, it was kind of realizing that I needed to slow down and actually take a look at myself and look inward which let's be real is pretty shit <laughs> to do <laughs> the work is never fun is it 
but um but yeah it was all kind of it was all culminating around that time period that I write about in the I think like in the like one of the opening chapters of realizing actually you know that that the Armageddon that was still coming through in my dreams the fact that I was a full-blown insomniac because every time I closed my eyes I was still within that world mm. I was still you know becoming a martyr all of this stuff was still so here that actually until I did something with it it was probably never going to go away yeah it, it's a it's a very unique framework of complex things that you were required to to to, to navigate um yet within all of that there is this just, and even now when you're talking, you know, there is this, this resonance and absolutely throughout the book of these incredibly strong internal instincts that you have and this very strong internal compass, um, even in the, in the most painful and, you know, some of the, the darkest and most difficult aspects that you write about, there is this very strong sense of this, these very strong instincts, this very strong internal compass. Um, you know, not just about the basic points of morality, you know, or immorality of the things that you were, you were experiencing, the things which you were told were right, but you just instinctively knew were wrong. But also this like incredible spirit you have, which, you know, just, you know, for me, just I have this image of it like a like a kind of flame that was held in the deepest part of you that just none of the storms around you could touch or extinguish and you know that is you know certainly an observation from somebody who does not know you intimately at all but I wonder how you know what that reflection means to you and if you feel that there is any truth in that. It's a, it's a really kind of interesting one to try and dissect because we look at kids and like kids are amazing like we essentially are given these beings and we kind of the ones that have to muck them up in a way mm. a lot of times and kids are so much more resilient I think than we even know mm. I mean you look, and that's not just because of kids who grow up in cults I mean I look around the world and what children are kind of put through and how they still kind of come out the other side and I'm not saying it's right but it's really interesting to me when people ask me about how did you know that certain things were wrong and like for example when we talk, think about the darker things that were going on in the children of God, like the sexual abuse of children, which was told to us was okay. It was, you know, they essentially created a manual for how to abuse children. Um, and, but so we should have grown up thinking that that was normal, if you think that that's your only point of reference. Mm -hmm. But we knew it wasn't right. There was mm -hmm. something that told us that it wasn't right. And I find that, I mean, I mean, obviously, it's it's horrible to think that 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 you know you have to have an experience like this to kind of prove that. But I find it amazing to think that there is this moral side to us that we adjust that we have, and people have to kind of muck around with it for it to go wrong. But you know, when a hug's for you or a hug is for them, in the basic, simplest terms, wow, you yeah. know, you know, like you 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 just know. And that, and that doesn't even talk about necessarily abuse. You know that in relationships and connection, you know when somebody is giving or when they're taking because that is just innate in us as human beings. Um, and I think that when it comes to children, like 
there's this there as you called it I think you know I, I, I love the way that you describe it this you know the flame and like children are amazing and resilient and the kids that I've met on my journey are just I mean I get emotional thinking about it because like I created these experiences and these relationships with children in like 10 different cults and um and I could see what you're talking about I could see kids I think I describe it in some of the chapters in the book like the 12 tribes etc kids that were being you know oppressed in these ways that were just you know beaten and they were the workforce and no education and all the rest of it but I could still see like when they were away from their parents and you catch them in the eye and you have a little laugh and the child in them just comes out and it makes me quite emotional thinking about it because it's just there under the surface and you have to kind of squash that but for it to take hold and um I had um a quite amazing experience about a month ago and I've actually written an extra chapter for the book because it's coming out in paperback in, oh, wow. on July 7th and I've written a chapter about this experience because um it just it kind of blew my mind a bit but I basically was contacted by some of the kids in one of the cults that I visited who've just got out and they basically found me and thanked me for like coming and meeting them and the experience that we had together and how like they said it was like a quite a big moment of change to have someone from the outside and it kind of I didn't even think about it when I've been like we're in contact now and we're like talking like pretty much daily at the moment and you know you kind of sometimes think about as documentary makers and writers and stuff you think about the negative effect you might have on situations like and what have you and I never saw myself really as like any to begin with, I wanted to be a savior. Please, let's be brutally honest about this. I genuinely wanted to be like this female empowered warrior savior that was going to like right all the wrongs of the past. And then obviously, as you know, that went completely tits up. But, um, but when I got these kids talking to me from this group and they're out and they're now doing their GEDs, which I think is the same as a, like a GCSE, but in America, and they're like in education and they're flourishing and like you know that's not because of me but to have that contact with them now and to think if there was anything if there was any moment that might have nudged you know their mum if there was anything that within them had that moment um then uh, then then the whole thing was worth doing regardless of whether it's a documentary or a book it doesn't matter if it, if it was if, it, if one kid has had any kind of change um, and it made me think about what happened with Walter, and I'm absolutely I was just not about saying. To say, yeah, it's very interesting yeah. how that mirrors the experience you had with Walter, who was the journalist that suddenly pushed on a door into the rest of the world that you didn't even know existed either. Uh, Bexy, for our listeners who might might not know, it's it's such a beautiful story. Would you mind just? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the Walter story is one that um, I you know I, I I love telling because it is it is amazing to think that one person can have such an incredible effect mm. and I think that it also speaks to the idea of asking questions of people and how much that can change the trajectory of a life so basically Walter was the first ever journalist that was allowed inside the children of God the backstory is um, was there was loads of newspaper articles coming out that were essentially telling the truth about the children of God and they find and they we, we had to stop hiding we were running, running, like we were fleeing from the police, from the journalists, 
um, and it was happening very frequently and it wasn't sustainable. So the children of God decided to stop running and make a PR, like public relations face for the children of God to try and make us more palatable. And Walter Schwartz was the first journalist ever to be allowed inside the children of God. So for him, it was a real scoop, as you can imagine. Work for the Guardian, and he's like, I'm getting into a sex cult, essentially, which is like, and, and he was allowed to stay for three nights, and it was like a, you know, a first ever thing. But for us, what we did was we were scrubbing the house, we were being trained how to how to behave, trained how, what questions he might ask, like, you know, basically being media trained for like weeks and weeks and weeks before he came, which is essentially what happened with this the group that these kids were in. Um, that they contacted me and they told me that what happened with me happened with them. They were told, they were briefed on what to say, they were briefed on the questions, they were briefed on the answers. All of that stuff completely mirrored my experience of being of, of this time period. Um, so anyway, Walter, in my interview with him, didn't ask any of the questions that we were prepped with, all the kind of complicated ones about, you know, prostitution and abuse and all the rest of it. He just said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? But obviously, for someone who'd been told that they weren't going to grow up, for someone who'd been given the expiration date of like oh, 14 God. years old, yeah, um, it was just like the world opened up in front of me. And it really was this moment of going, there may be another way. This man that is looking at me, and I can tell because of the fact that I've been lied to, my whole life, that this doesn't feel like a lie. And it did, and you know, but you know, I was still looking for the lie. Yeah, I was looking for the lie in his face and I couldn't find it. And as he said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because by this point, he'd been so kind and lovely. And like, as kids that hadn't experienced that, we never experienced parents as parents or adults being kind. We were essentially, uh, you know, the workforce. We were, you know, the, the just the 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 kind of underlings, the worker bees. And so to have somebody to behave like this where they're interested and they ask you questions, I was already like totally enamored with him. So when he said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I just mirrored what he did. I said, I want to be like you. I want to be a journalist. And I didn't know what it really meant. And it, it's not like I'm saying, oh, wow, that's because I did what I'm doing now because of him. But definitely it was the crack in the wall that was around me that was let this bit of light in that essentially started my my journey to kite to where I am now if you like it was the first step and it made me go what they're telling me might not be true what i've been told might not be real and um and that was really obviously really important so and how old were you then Maxie, when Walter came i was 11 i was 11 yeah 11 years old and which is which weirdly is a similar age to the 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 kids I'm talking to now. It like the mirroring of it, and I'm please don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that I am Walter and la la la. I think, you know, it's it's just interesting to me for me to see that this there is a cyclical nature to to what happened and to the fact that these kids are now out and they've got in touch with me and we've got this relationship now. And um and obviously, as you know, because you've read the book, like when I tracked down Walter when I was 27, 28 years old, which was my first step in the making of all of this journey. The first step in my process was tracking him down because I wanted to say thank you because I knew that he'd like changed my life. 
And I talked about him loads, like my Guardian journalist. I didn't remember what his name was. But when I finally tracked him down, the weird thing was, is that I was friends with his son already. And it was just like, I'd actually dated his son. Not for long, but like a, a weird, like when we first met. And like, I remember actually being on a date with him and him saying, oh, my dad would find you really interesting. And I was like, that's a bit forward. And, and it was literally like five years later, I was, I, I, you know, found the name of him and all the rest of that stuff that you can read in the book. But like, and I, and I said, I can text my friend, Zach. And I was like, Zach, like, did your dad visit the children of God? And like, da, 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 da. And he was like, I don't think, he, I don't think, he, come on, let's be real. If this isn't, this isn't your journalist, because he already knew about him. And then it was like, uh, dad wants you to come over for the weekend. It's him. And I was like, oh my God. The, anyway, just the, it's just the weirdest kind of set of, but like what it is, you know, when people talk about moments of divinity and like divine moments, and I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not religious, but I do believe there are these moments which can just be filled with something extra. And I had one with him when I was, you know, 11 years old. And then I had another one with him when I was at that weekend at his house where, you know, I was still quite trapped in the whole kind of like shutdown and a bit of not, not necessarily victimizing, just a shutdown of that whole thing. And, um, and it was him saying to me then, like, you have been given this unique perspective on life and the world and everything because of what's happened to you. And what are you going to do with it? I was like, not another question, yeah. God. But not like, another it's, question it's that's going to change my life. Yeah, Walter. come on. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, Walter! Stop changing please. my life. Is one <laughs> <laughs> but exactly, but like, what a what an incredible kind of thing to kind of almost give to somebody to be like, yeah, what happened was really messed up. But like, also, what are you going to do with it? Because you have a choice. And that, and I'm not saying that everybody needs to go and start doing creative things with their trauma because if if you all you can do with your trauma is survive it, that's enough. Good for you. That's you know what I mean. Like we, we don't all need to kind of go extra on it. But like for me, I needed to do something with it because it was eating me. So what an incredible gift to be given to understand that there was a choice in how and what I did with it and how I behaved and how it affected me essentially. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Bex, you just said that you were, you were 11 years old when you met Walter for the first time, and certainly that was a meeting that had a profound impact and effect on you and your life. It's also particularly significant because this is not long after... As a 10-year-old, you had been put on silent restriction for a year. And one of the most, oh, God, one of just the one of the most moving and powerful, well, there's so many in the book, but there is this moment where you describe when you spoke the first word you had spoken to another person in more than a year when you were 10 years old to your friend Maria, who was living in the Children of God with you. And if you don't mind, I just wanted just to kind of read back a, an extract from the book when you, de- when yeah, you describe please. that. Hey, she whispered into the dark. Hey, I said back. Hey, the first real word I'd uttered in a year. So simple, a single syllable that means so little, but meant more than anything to me in the world. And right there was my escape hatch back into humanity, back to sanity a whisper in the dark, a word that made me visible again. Um, I mean, I don't need to say anything else, Bexy. I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that, like, one of the things that was really, um, I suppose, damaging about the silence restriction, whereas it's not the most brutal of the punishments that they came up with, is the fact that it does make you invisible. And what mm. what I believe we're here on this planet for is connection. Yeah. You know, that the connection with other human beings. So to become invisible within a, a communal, you know, there's people experience this in, in the world, like the loneliness mm-hmm. that can make you feel invisible. It's it's stripping of your humanity. Um, and for it to happen at that age, I think, was it also quite a poignant kind of, you know, thing as well. But to to find this person, and Maria as well, I should mention, had also been on silence restriction for a, for a similar amount of time, and we're the same age. So we found each other, and to have this like like connection that was electric and also not allowed mm. was so important to me, like, in, like just insanely important to me to feel like I became human again in that in that moment in, in within her presence um so yeah and what I think one of the things that I, I one of the things that I do kind of bang on about quite a lot is like this book I feel is a little bit of a love a love story you know and it's not like your normal one like there's two there's two kind of main female big loves within the book and that's that's Sophie and that's Maria and you know the two different timelines both have these like really strong and powerful friendships which really were my lifeline you know in, di- in different ways and uh and you know Maria and I are still you know best friends which has lasted you know for decades and you know Sophie and I the the bond that we have is um just a- amazing and intense and just wonderful and beautiful and all those things and I just think that there's just something that that 
is just incredibly powerful about our friendships and how they can get us through some of the most, you know, some of the most horrific things, essentially, to have somebody that sees you. And I know we talk about being seen quite a lot and it can kind of feel like it's just white noise when you hear certain terminology of like, oh, I felt seen and this, that and the other. But really thinking about what it feels like when somebody actually connects Mm -hmm. and sees you and actually feels you as a human being and how important that is. Um, And again, it's something I think that is, is just probably relates to more people than we really, than we think. Yeah. There are men, there are a few moments in the book where you make these really, really powerful and very, you know, straightforward observations about how, you know, cults arise out of the very basic human need for belonging and for community to feel seen to to, to, to to feel a sense of purpose and meaning and you make you know very interesting observation Bexy about how you feel you know we are all much more ripe for them and all that they provide than we may realize yeah I think that it kind of a lot of it comes down to like right time right place or yeah. wrong time wrong place if you want to put it in the more dangerous side of things just in the same way that we're all probably capable of getting into a really damaging relationship where someone controls us in some way because really that's what it is it's a relationship that's toxic and has full elements of control so if you can see that how that would happen which is many of the formulas are exactly the same the love bombing that happens when somebody who you know eventually ends up controlling you in a relationship Mm. that's the same in a cult you know the feeling that you have been completely seen for exactly who you are that happens within a cult. The way that people almost make you elevated, that can happen in relationships and cults. So my point is that it, it does come down to what that person might need and like what is lacking in their life. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about cults and we look at them in the ways where we go like, oh, how did it get so, how did they end up drinking the Kool-Aid? Or how did they end up printing a book about how to abuse children? Or, you know, how did they end up poisoning the town next to them? We talk about all the things that are at the end point, but it's all the teeny tiny bits that get you there that are slightly more innocuous or under the radar or more, you know, just, just, yeah, just a bit more silent. And that's, you know, again, look at a damaging relationship and you can see that it, it does. You don't start dating someone that is just a complete arsehole. You go out with somebody that presents in a certain way. Look at my parents. They didn't join a cult that was abusing children. They joined a revolution. They joined the Jesus army for the end time. They thought they were going to change the world. Vietnam War and all the rest of it, nuclear, made them believe that the world genuinely was coming to an end. And I think that if we were in that time we would have felt the same way. I'm not saying we would have joined a cult, but we probably would have looked around at the political landscape and everything that was going on and said, this is, this can't go on. This can't, this, this is not sustainable. But what happened was they joined a cult that they thought was going to do good. And then it changed quicker than you would think. But still it was, you know, it was steps towards where they got to. You know, Bex, we, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, in what the book does is it kind of, it, it steps between, you know, your story, but then also the story that's happening in, in kind of real time um, 
where you describe, you know, alongside your childhood story, um, your journey that you make back into the belly of many different cults across America as a way of trying to make sense of what happened to you and of your parents' decision, as you've just been talking about, to, to raise you and your siblings in this way. And, you know, did you, did you, did you find that there was that kind of consistent theme, things that you, you recognised in the sort of frameworks of, you know, how and why your parents made the decision to join the children of God in the same way that other families were deciding to, 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 to join all the different cults that you met? Absolutely. Yeah, there was such clear, yeah. like, consistencies some of the some of the things you've already mentioned, but you know the reason people join cults is because they're looking for that sense of purpose. They're looking for connection. They're looking for the the group that makes them feel at home. The other things that they get when they join a group is all of a sudden all the things that we worry about on a daily basis, like simple things: how am I going to pay my rent? What am I doing with my life? All of that stuff that we worry about, you know, probably since mm. being a teenager, gone in an instant. Our purpose is taken care of. And also you're elevated to being better than other people. There's an elitism that comes with being in a cult where you're like, right. no one else knows. <laughs> like, you know, and that, that's intoxicating as well because all of a sudden, bump, you're like, your purpose taken care of, you're better than everyone else, you're part of a group, you don't have to worry about the normal things. All you have to do for this is hand over your independent thought and your autonomy. And that's what you get in return. And for some people, that's worth it. They want that and yeah absolutely yeah and the way that they keep it up is you know to be within a group environment there has to be a collective identity there is no I there is only we it's not about the family structure anymore because families can't be families because families have a hierarchy that doesn't fit within a cult the cult is the family and this is stuff that when I was going around I saw happening time and time and time again these correlations between all of these adults and why they had joined cults. And the biggest one I haven't even mentioned, which is enlightenment. The moment that you feel like everything makes sense. I mean, wow, I've never had that. That must be bananas. To have that experience where you go, oh, this is it. This is it. I mean, it's the, like, how intoxicating does that sound? But within all of this, and I was interested to know why my parents joined. And I did want to unpick why people in general join cults because I felt like I didn't want to look at me necessarily. I wanted to look at it. I wanted to take a bit of a standpoint where I could go, okay, how do we break this down in a logical, practical way? Obviously, I realized I couldn't only do that. <laughs> there had to be the looking at me bit as well. But what I did also see was the correlation between the kids within these groups. And what it meant to grow up in a world that you were essentially an experiment, that they had no idea how you were going to turn out because you're the first generation of children that had been raised within this environment. Those were all the groups I went to. That was the correlation between them because that's what I was really interested in. What happens when you raise your kids in an experiment? And the other thing is that they, there was, there's no choice. They are the innocent passengers within this world. They tend to be the ones that are told that they are the chosen ones, but yet treated as if they are, I wouldn't say, not even baggage, they're treated as if they are just vessels of some description, whether it's working or whatever. And the big thing that I kind of realized on my whole trip 
was this realization that of course, because I couldn't figure out like, we should be allowed to believe what we want and religious freedom should exist. But the, re the real kind of rub for me, the real moment when you know that things have gone completely wrong is when someone's religious beliefs knock up against someone's human rights. And that's it. It's quite simple when you put it like that. Is this affecting their human rights? Is this affecting their autonomy, their freedom, their education, their right to speak? And that's when you can see that it actually is going like completely wrong. Because of course we go, you know, I've met people who believe in aliens. I mean, I'm engaged to one. And I'm like, <laughs> go for it. Fantastic. Why not? You're not doing any harm with it. You can, you know, he meditates into the sky to heal the world with the aliens. I'm like, what harm is that doing? Have at it. I'll join in. Amazing. But, you know, it's like, is what you're doing creating good? I've met Christians that come from such a place of empathy and compassion that I love them for it. Is what you're doing making the world better? Is it providing connection or is it separating people? Is it bolstering people or is it traumatizing them? It's really easy to see when a group is going wrong. It's really easy to see when somebody is in a relationship where they're being encouraged and supported or if they're being squashed and diminished. Are they being allowed to connect with their friends? If they're being separated, you can tell there's a problem, right? Like, so it's the same kind of mechanics when you look at religious cults. At the end of your book, Rexy, you and again, I'm going to, um, if you don't mind, just read back your words to you because I don't think anyone can say this better than you. You said, I've been looking for answers and every place that I've visited has given me something and has taught me more about myself and why my parents did what they did. And yet I wonder... Have I given the little girl inside me the voice that she needed? That girl who went through so much. I know that part of my promise was to tell the world for her. It's why I'm on this journey. And I just wondered, well, if you could talk to us a little bit more about that and also, you know, what, how the writing of the book served the voice of the little girl that needed to be heard for you. I think we probably all have a child inside of us that needs to be heard in some way. Mm. But I, you know, I, I, I definitely felt that there was this, you know, we all grow up, grew up, our, our generation within this group especially grew up being completely unseen and unheard unless it was for their use. And to kind of become an adult that knows that but doesn't really know that. Like I knew that I needed to tell the, I knew I needed to tell the story in some way because when I had my kind of like breakdown as like a 10, 11 year old within the group, I was like, if I ever get out of here, I do need to tell people what happened because it's not okay. Mm -hmm. And that was mm -hmm. kind of like this burning thing that was in me, even when I pretended that it wasn't. So I knew that part of that voice that I needed to give the girl who'd been shut down and silenced was in this journey and was in the writing of this book for sure. And that process was absolutely invaluable. But I think a Another equally important part of the process was I needed to stand as an adult in front of the two people that did me the most harm in the world, which is my parents. And I needed to let them know what that little girl experienced. I needed to allow her out in an adult way to tell them to their faces what my experience was. And it wasn't about, I didn't want answers from them. I didn't want an excuse. I didn't want them to rationalize it. I wanted them to say nothing. 
I wanted them to listen. And it didn't even matter if they processed it because there was something about me voicing it that was enough. And that, I think, is something that we probably all have something inside of us that needs to come out. And, like, you know, we, our parents are our first loves, and sometimes they can be our, our biggest heartbreaks as well, wherever you grow up, because, you know, that's the nature of being a human, essentially. Um, but specifically with my parents, I needed to have a... It's not even a day of reckoning. I needed to have a day of standing in my truth Again, an overused term, but really, really real for this moment. Where I said, this is how what you did manifested itself for me. This is my experience of what happened. No one can argue with your experience of what happened. Nobody can rationalize your experience. It belongs to one person, you. Mm-hmm. And to tell them what my experience was of feeling controlled and used and feeling like I was never allowed to say what I thought and splitting into two people which is what I think a lot of people do you experience moments in two separate ways one externally one Mm. internally because of the fact that you can't allow the real version of you out like that I took me so long to put those two people back together how do I feel all of that how do I think everything so I think the writing of the book was the part that the that you know the young me and the, the and me now needed to process what happened. The journey was there to understand my parents, and the standing in front of them was to stand in that moment of truth and allow her to have her say because she'd never had it. Sounds weird when I talk about her like she like that, <laughs> but but like it's the only way that I can really verbalize that kind of moment. Mm. Bexy, what does courage feel like? Oh, I think courage is like, I think it's sometimes just deeply uncomfortable. You know, I think the after effect of courage can be amazing. When I walked away from that moment, which took great courage, for sure, I felt just, just so like, almost like, or I kind of cringing at my own words, but almost like filled, like it, it filled me with light. Not that I was light, but it filled me with light to have that courage. But the coming up to it is deeply uncomfortable. The stepping into it is horrific. But the after effects, and really, when it's something that's as important as this, that you need to take courage for, that you know that moment of courage can change your the rest of your life because how it changes how you feel about yourself and how it can actually mend moments in the past in your psyche is so worth it for that uncomfortability or that you know the the terror before you step in mm. it's feeling the fear and doing it anyway isn't it yeah <laughs> um Bexy, if there's one person in the world that you'd want to feel proud of you, who would that be? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's really tough. I I mean, I I would have... My my granddad's passed on now, but I think he was really proud of me. But, you know, he's got a real special place in my my heart. My grandparents were amazing. They they really chased us around the world and it was so difficult for them and they stuck at it. And that's like in, in, in so important to me that that 
that they that they cared enough to do that. Is this your your maternal grandparents or your on your dad or your mum's or dad's side? You know, my, on my mum's side, um, but also my dad's mum. She also chased us around the world, and like she didn't, she she, she was like my grandparents were just incredible, incredible, incredible humans. That and you, can you imagine the heartbreak of losing your kids to a cult? Like what they went through is is by, like basically bereavement while your child is still alive. So, but they stuck at it. They tried to connect with my parents their whole lives, which which I I mean that to me is just some form of unconditional love that I will never like be able to grasp. But I'm just in absolute awe of. Mm. Unconditional love is one of the greatest gifts we can have in our lives. I think wherever it comes from, yeah, absolutely. Really is. And it and it exists way beyond the sort of physical f- form of the person who gave you that love being alive you know I I really do think that you know well again I can only speak from my own experience but certainly love is the thing that completely transcends time space you know being alive or being dead I mean it is something that has its completely its own life force which when you see someone that has had it and even if the person that has given it to them is gone, it exists because it manifests in the things that they do and how they pass it on. Mm-hmm. And that is that, exactly. you know, not to get too kind of, again, like spiritual and stuff, but that passing on of that energy means that it doesn't die in any way because it's like, no. yeah, it just multiplies, which is really comforting. <laughs> no, it is. It is. So, Bexy Cameron, um, if it is possible to um, dedicate this conversation to a song, what would that be? And tell us a little bit why. So, I'm going to dedicate this episode to I'm Going to Dance with Somebody, Houston. <laughs> Amazing. Because, just because it, like, the first time I heard that, um, which was years after it came out, obviously, but once I got out and I heard Whitney Houston singing that, it just ricocheted throughout my entire being as a teenager so yeah that was pretty I'll never forget that moment I was literally spinning around on the spot and it was just insane it yeah just yeah so yeah what a banger possible not to spin around on the spot when you hear that song no matter how many times you've heard it but my god the first time oh Bexy you're amazing darling thank you so 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 much we love you and here you have it Whitney Houston I want to dance with somebody
Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to rate, review and subscribe to us on your podcast app, then please do. And you know the score, five stars, please. If you'd like to come and say hello on Instagram, then you can find me and all things human podcast related at This Is Jess Mills. This podcast was created and hosted by me, Jess Mills, with creative co-production by Bonnie Tyvon and produced by Joel Porter at dot dot dot. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.